0: Hey, everybody. It is episode 44 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Rogue Running in Austin, Texas. I'm here with my co-host, Steve. Hey, Steve. How are you? Hello, everyone. We are excited to be coming at you again, especially on this day because we've got some listener questions that we're going to get to. We've gotten several emails and some questions from the community here in Austin over the last few weeks. And instead of Sending long responses individually. We're just going to talk about it on the podcast because we think some of these will benefit everyone. And we also want to encourage others to send questions as they have them because we're going to be doing an episode like this here and there to get your questions answered. So that'll be our main topic, Steve and I riffing on a few questions from listeners. But as always, of course, we start with some current events and we've got some good ones to talk about the US 10 mile championships happened this past weekend and there was an interesting wrinkle to this one which now has even more i guess drama associated with it in the aftermath but the 10 mile championships was set up us road 10 mile championships was set up as a battle of the sexes type event i believe they did this last year as well where they gave the women a six minute and 18 second head start and The idea was that the winner, male or female, the first one to get to the line with that head start for the women would get an additional $10,000 on top of their first prize money, which I believe was $12,000. So it was a close one. And this is one I'll you know, I'll link to the article on this, but the the photo finish or at least the picture of the finishing straight was awesome because you had two women battling it out neck and neck for the win and you had two men battling it out neck and neck for the win. All four of them battling out for the battle of the sexes, so it was high drama on the finishing straight for this one. On paper, initially the men took the win. But as I mentioned, we've got some drama with that which we'll cover in a second. Let's talk about the men's race. Steve, the top 6 men in this race all are coached by Scott Simmons with his kind of combined American distance project and our, and world-class army group with Kip Chichir, Shadrach Kip Chichir and Leonard career again, going head to head. And this time Kip Chichir got the win, narrowly edging out his teammate Leonard career. They had the same time, didn't they? They got the same they time. They did 47-33 yeah. and they had to go to a photo finish it, it, and actually, on the live feed, the USATF.TV live feed, they interviewed career first, thinking <laughs> that he was the winner. But then the photo finish showed that Kip got the win with the photo finish. But, he, but he, those two were neck and neck, as they've been in a lot of these races, as they've been in the, the 10K on the track. And then you had Emmanuel Bohr, Heron Lagott, Kibet, and Sambasa four other of their training partners rounding out the top six I mean it's it's quite unbelievable how Scott Simmons and his two groups although I know they train together have basically taken the U.S. men's distance running world by storm I mean they've they've kind of got a monopoly on it at this point certainly if you exclude the marathon because now that Rupp has moved up these guys are dominating everything else below the marathon Absolutely. from the road Absolutely. to the track steeple 10k 5k or otherwise and so what do you make of this i mean it's it's unbelievable unbelievable results from such a small group i, I don't i don't know i don't know how to react i think it's cool and fun <laughs> i know we've got mixed feelings about their country of origin and all, origin and all of that but what do you make of it
1: well, first off, you you can't—it's super easy to critique um, Scott for having a group of basically all Kenyan-born athletes. Um, but it's not—but but he needs to, first of all—and I'll get into the critique in a bit. But first of all, it needs to be recognized that he has not screwed up with any of these guys. They all are running the best in their life. They're running better than they ran in their college programs. They're running more consistently. They're racing at exceed ac- incredibly high level. And they're racing a lot. I mean, Chris, they've been running they've raced a lot. Track, oh, road, everything. World championships, US right. championships. Doesn't matter. They've been they've been out there, they've been racing. So I mean Paul Chalimo,
0: by the way, just he's not in this race, but he right. ran the the charity run that Emma Coburn put on in Crested Butte a five K just because. Right. So these guys won't shy away from a
1: race. No, they're not afraid to race. And I think Scott's got it. And I, as a, you know, it's hard to coach athletes of this level, um, and to have them race that much. Um, I think I love that part of it. I like his his attitude and his style. I like is obviously got them strong enough that they can run. They can they're they're constantly able to rebound and recuperate from the races and get back out. That's the sign of it. Incredibly well planned program. No matter what your other arguments might be for why they have such success, right? Which there are going to be folks out there that are going to throw shade um, at this program um, for reasons beyond the ones I'm going to throw shade on it about in a little while. But if you want to talk about drugs and whether or not there's drugs there, I don't know. But I'm going back to my old standard, innocent until proven guilty. Um but I still think no matter what the that scenario, for them to race at this level, this consistency, man, he's he's doing something right over there. And it seems like also you've got all these guys who could very easily be at each other's throats. I mean, basically Kipchichir and um Chalimo and Carrera are racing each other all the time. I mean ahead. all the time. And Chilanga's in this group too, right? Chilanga trains in this group. Now Chilanga has yeah. been sort of a drifter. He's gone from program to program for a while. Found a home here with Scott, but it, I think Chilanga's running the best that he's run in the last 4 to 5 years. So, I mean, I hats off to Scott for getting this group of athletes, which could be contentious and could be difficult to get all those different studs to put put it together and run and race each other well. They were doing a great job. But I have a real fundamental problem with just this concept. It bothers me greatly. Um, you know, it's a slippery slope to say it's okay for Meb or it's okay for, um, our Legat. the Sudanese, or Legat. Well, Legat, I'm no fan of Legat's scenario <laughs> at all. I've never been a fan of it. I think he, I think he should not have been, once he had represented the, once he had represented Kenya at the, the level of the Olympics and the world championships, he should not have been able to, uh, to represent the United States in my opinion. But I just don't think it was right. But anyway. That's okay. He he was a one-off. But now we've got guy after guy after guy after guy after guy coming over and doing this. And I don't understand why our system should be supporting athletes from another country. That's my personal feeling. Um, But I certainly absolutely don't understand why the United States military is supporting these people. Um, That is problematic to me. And everybody that knows me knows I'm not necessarily a big Trump lover, but I think if Donald Trump got in that wind of what was going on here, he'd be ending this thing, shutting this thing down tomorrow. But just to say, it, speaking it's speaking of
0: slippery slopes.
1: Exactly. I'm just gonna. I I I got in the muck and I'm coming right back up. All right. <laughs> I I dip my toe in the mud and I'm coming back up. Just to say, I don't know. I think it. It there's there's something about this that just doesn't seem right to me, and something that I just don't feel like it's good for American distance running. I know there are people who are going to just say this is crazy and these guys are representing their, their country and so and that is our country and that we should give them the benefit of the doubt. And I do, I do feel like there is some sense to that. But I think this is the only way they could have gone this through. The, it's a loophole. It's a loophole that's been created for the United States to get these athletes to represent them. And it's a loophole that Nike has utilized and loophole that this program has utilized to basically take these, and these guys, you can't blame them. I mean, they've got a sweet setup. It's a great situation for them. But I still have a problem with them running for—representing the United States is not as big a problem as I have as representing our U.S. military because these guys are not on the front lines. These guys are not in Afghanistan. These guys are not. They went through basic training, but after that, that's it.
0: Although they will say that if they don't perform, then they got to go to serve— <laughs> Perhaps. Well, the they lines. got a
1: badass coach, so that's not nobody. There's no, there doesn't seem to be much of a problem it, with it that. There
0: is incentive, maybe. <laughs> oh, hell yeah.
1: To, to keep it together. And for, and for reference,
0: there's two different groups here, all under Scott the American Distance Project and then the Army Elite Group. And so not all of these guys are in that Army group, but if they are, they get basically fast tracked to citizenship in exchange for service in the Army. But their service right now is professional distance running
1: and wearing that. Army and I seatbelt. just and I just have a fun. I think that's where my real problem comes, Chris. You know, I'm 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 I don't like the fact that they're able to represent the United States when they have had no investment in the United States system beyond the collegiate system, which obviously gave them huge benefits. My problem is that they're. I mean, I don't have a big problem with the ADP people, right? I don't. I don't. That Austin. That the American Distance Project thing is not a big problem for me. It's the folks that are representing our country. And as military personnel who are using a loophole, in my opinion, in the system to benefit. And then our elite athletes, programs like Schumacher's group, um, it, it takes it takes a group that leveraged, like Schumacher's group and like uh, Alberto's group, to be able to compete with these guys. And we know they're not operating on a level. I mean, they're operating at a, at a really high level. And again, Nike is representing is, is, the, is, the, is the sponsor for all three of those groups. So basically, how hard is it for the Brooks Beasts to compete? How hard is it for the Mammoth Track Club group in, that's sponsored by ASICS to compete? How hard is it for BAA, even BAA at the highest level, who has got a lot of money with Adidas? How do they compete with this? It just, I don't know. I just see it as a, as a difficult thing for the development of American distance running. And we're able to, and it's, it, folks, it's really not a black-white thing. This is not the fact it's not, it's not that. It's not a race thing. It's a representation of different countries thing for me. And it's really important that uh, I just don't... I just, it's just, it just bothers me a little bit. The issue is
0: also not black or white. It's a very no, gray. No, it's very true. It's very gray. And there's a lot of kind of sub-questions and parts to this. But the good thing is that these guys are competing at a high level. They're racing a lot, which is fun. And they're putting on a show. So props to them
1: for that. And we're not, and again, we're not, we're not anti these guys. I mean, I'm a huge Chalimo fan. I love that Chalimo's running, running for the United States. It's just, it's just it, should he be representing the U.S. Army and and, representing, and, and getting a fast track for that? I, I'm Chalimo, by the way, I follow him on Twitter, and he tweeted the other day. He said,
0: I've been eating a lot of pizza in my, <laughs> in my off season, so I still can't figure out why a round pizza comes in a square box and you eat it in triangles. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's, he's a, he's a he's funny awesome. guy he's so you awesome. gotta
0: give props to Paul Chalivo right. US citizenship well earned or not yes so that's the men's race dominated by Scott Simmons team turning it to the women's race really interesting top three these three battled it out ended up finishing only nine seconds apart Sarah Hall got the win which is great for her she's always typically second or third in some of these but she got the win in 40 sorry fifty three forty three. And then her teammate, coached by Steve Magnus as well, Natasha Rogers, who we've talked about on this podcast, was just two seconds back as they battled it down the uh, battled it out down the home stretch. and Tuliamuk was just behind Rogers, another seven seconds at fifty three fifty two. She led the way and did a lot of the work early on, but didn't quite have the the kick at the end. Sarah Hall. Sat behind those two. for She most didn't do of the any race. work. She didn't do any work, and it showed at the end because she had a little bit left, while the other two had kind of been throwing
1: haymakers at each yep. other. Yep. So, but an and awesome those two, T- Tillyamuk and Natasha Rogers, have been throwing haymakers at each other for th- the collegiate career, now into their professional careers as well. So yes. they've been getting after it, it for a long time. But
0: really good race, and you know, one footnote here is Rogers apparently Natasha tweaked her hamstring the day before. Had decided not to race, texted that to her coach, and then, inst- and then the next morning texted Steve and said, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go <laughs> do <gonna>. it anyway, <laughs> and I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> love to hear that. And, That's- and so she apologized, but then showed up and almost won the thing. Yeah. which is awesome it
1: shows a little bit about her mentality absolutely she's a fighter she wants to race that's why she does it she doesn't do it for training she doesn't do it because it's a live a way to make a living she does it because she just wants to cut people's heads off and shit down their throats yeah. pretty much And we can't wait till she moves up to the marathon Because i it's am so be, excited it's gonna be good it is and, I, and she's built for it i mean we've already had this conversation our listeners have had to hear us but they probably think i have a a crush on this girl but I mean, I did recruit her out of high school to try to come to the University of Texas. I also tried to recruit her to come on our elite team when I had a chance. I was thwarted in both areas because of money and finances. But she's in a great place with Steve. Steve has got it going on with his with his athletes right now. They're running really, really well. Whether these athletes are teammates or not is kind of hard to tell exactly if they're training consistently with each other. You know, the Halls live in Big Bear, but they also have something going on in Houston, it seems like. Um, I think Natasha is in Houston um, one of our former Rogue AC athletes and an athlete I coached at the University of Texas for a number of years uh, moved to Houston recently, and she started working with Steve Magnus. Um, that's Allie Mendez. Um, so it, they're doing a great job. Steve's doing a great job, and these athletes are running really, really well, and it's exciting to see. Um, and they're in good hands there, that's for sure. Indeed. So
0: the now now we got to talk about the drama, which is that as it was on the race course, the men finished first, but then the super sleuths from let's run.com pointed out that (laughs) the gap between their winning times was only six minutes and 10 seconds. So they said, Hey, something's wrong. Either the timing's wrong or the gap wasn't right. And so let's run emailed the race directors and said, Hey, what's the deal? And it turns out, and it was just announced today as we record this, that hall should have been given the overall battle of the sexes win, because basically they started the men too soon. They only gave her a six minute and 10 second advantage and if she'd gotten that eight e- eight extra seconds she would have she would have gotten the win. So they awarded her ten grand for the Battle of the Sexes. Shadrach Kipchichir got lucky and gets to
1: keep his ten grand as well. But he but you know what Chris he should have because the way races work he, yeah, he didn't know. He didn't well he was, he was racing. He was racing but he was also racing yeah he didn't he was it racing wasn't both. Correct. And who knows, maybe they would have picked it up a mile earlier or two miles earlier to bridge the gap that they needed to get those ex- extra yeah, eight seconds. I agree. So it's not, it's dis- It's not fair to take that money away from him when it was an error done by so kudos to, um, the race staff there. They got it right. They did it right. And, um, also kudos to, I mean, to, to hall for continuing to drive. I mean, Folks, you got to go and look at this picture. It's really, really cool. You also, you you get Sarah Hall actually looking kind of askance at the side like, oh shit, I didn't hold them <laughs> off. Like, a, yeah. like like, a look. And she is driving oh, hard. You can see them, her driving all hard. All of them are really giving it. It's yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great photo. It's
0: cool. I think it's cool for distance running fans. to. So it's a cool concept. I'm glad they, they do it. I agree.
1: It's a really cool it idea. Makes it fun.
0: Yep. And yeah, to have those four male, female duking it out at the end. Really, really cool. So that's the U.S. 10 Mile Championships update. We will link to an article on that so you guys can see that picture we talked about. All right. So now we've got to talk cross country. It's cross country season. College collegiate cross country, high school cross country. It's all going on. We've talked about cross country and how it's underrated in this world of running. And so we've just got to tease it a little bit. And warn people that they're going to get some cross country stuff coming at them. We're just going to give them a little nibble today, but as the collegiate season progresses and some of the big meets conference and national meets come up, we will be talking about it some more, but we want to talk about one meet in particular, the Notre Dame invitational Colorado, New Mexico. Women who many say are the top two teams in the country we're going head to head in this meet to see sort of who's who's best at least at this juncture and i think it it shows a snapshot of what cross country is all about which we've talked about which is that both new mexico had if you if you had teams of four they had the four best collective group of runners out there absolutely and colorado didn't but because of the fifth runner One Maddie Borman, who we've talked about on this show, from Austin area, from from Cedar Cedar Park Park area. She finished 18th overall as their fifth runner, edging out New Mexico's fifth runner, who finished 34th, which gave Colorado the team win because they only edged New Mexico by four points, 47 to 51. And those first four athletes, of course, they all mattered on both teams, but it came down to the linchpin, and Maddie. Finished a really respectable 18th as a young sophomore in this race, highly competitive race, Notre Dame Invitational, and so it just—it's cool. It's a cool snapshot of what cross country is all about. Is that it's not just about your top runners; it's about all five who can make the team, and then perhaps some that were going to push other runners out. I know. I think Colorado even had a sixth runner finish before 34th. So, so you know, that runner played a role as well, pushing that New Mexico fifth runner a little bit further out. So talk about cross country, tee it up, remind people the magic of it, well, just, the f- and then we'll move
1: on for cool. now. For the first thing is, let's explain the p- scoring, because that's the most important thing. Cross country is a team sport, all right? It's not an individual sport. It's a team sport. And you get f- seven runners that get on a starting line to represent your school, and then you have to score the first five runners, and it's a super simple scoring process. If you get first place, you get one point. If you get eighteenth place, you get eighteen points. All right? That works all the way through your first five you' all the way through all seven runners is that's how it gets scored. Um, but only the first five count, and so you want the lowest number you can possibly get. That's the low score that you're looking for um and so. When you see scores in the teens, when you see scores in the twenties at major international, major national level meets like this one, that is a absolutely lights out team. Um, there were four. The next, so scoring is important to pay attention to. The second thing that's important to pay attention to is um, the season doesn't really start until the weekend of Notre Dame. Now, there's also Paul Short, which is on the East Coast. Um, there's Louisville has a meet, and the Oregon has a meet at Dillinger. So there's, it's the first real when everybody starts paying attention to what's going on and what's really happening in the sport. By the f- weekend of the 14th of October, which is coming up, um, that's the that's the weekend where we really start to see where everybody's lying and what's really happening on the national scene and who's real and who's pretenders because there's really only about two or three or four meets that people go to that weekend, and you really get this head-to-head competition where you figure out what's going on. Um, it's a little bit weird also the way that, that that they set this thing up in terms of how they decide what the rankings are and the rankings are based on coaches who make votes. And I was on, when I was a collegiate coach, I was on um, the committee that made these votes. So when you see the rankings, it's very similar to football rankings. There's a little bit of cagey gamesmanship going on within the context as coach, you know, you have the coaches polls and then you have the API poll or whatever other polls there are with, with cross country. There's only one poll, but it's built, it's made up of coaches who are on that, making those decisions. And so, um, that's another intriguing thing just to pay attention to is how that, how that plays out. And it's very interesting. It's really hard to tell who's really going to be good until the October 14th date. That's when we really start to tell.
0: And Colorado is,
1: under Mark Wetmore, is notorious for peaking late in the season, getting ready for the championship. And... But Joe Franklin's team from New Mexico, he's also known for getting it done at the NCAA championships as well. He has not yet—he's won a national title. I think he won last year or the year before. Can't remember exactly which year it was, but he's done it primarily with um, foreign athletes. A lot of athletes from the UK who come and come come to the United United States. They've run a collegiate system in the UK, but they've got another year or two years of eligibility, and they'll come there and run. And they're going to Albuquerque, New Mexico, because it's at five thousand feet, and they get to have an altitude training protocol. And they've got a great and Joe Franklin is a fantastic coach. So although they're importing a little bit of talent, um, they're still phenomenal. Arcan- I mean Colorado is getting. Great talent from the United States primarily because he's not really recruited. I don't think he's ever recruited a foreign athlete, to my knowledge. But
0: Also training at
1: altitude. At 6,000 feet instead yeah. of 5,000 feet, but yes. Um, anyway, it's super intriguing this year to see these two teams. They're not in the same conference. One is in the Pac-12 in Colorado, and the other one is in, um, I don't even remember what conference. Oh, Mountain West Conference is what uh, the conference that... Um, New Mexico is in, but they will be at the same regional qualifying meet. And that's a little bit different that there's a, re- your conference meets don't mean for much in term. they're just bragging rights, but the real nitty gritty, you got to get points and there's a point system. And we'll describe the point system to you all the next time we do this, because it's kind of confusing um, and how teams are ranked and where their points are um, plays into this. It's one of the problems that cross country has been dealing with over the last five to 10 years is how to appropriately get, the people, the teams on the starting line of the races that need to be there. And I'll explain that. It's a little confusing and a little com- convoluted, but it's the best system that people have been able to come up to, with to this point. But what's really cool about cross-country, Chris, you should, the milers are racing the 10K runners. Everybody's on the same starting line going after it. There's one argument I'd like to make out there. I wish the men would be not a 10k distance, and I wish the women were not a 5k distance because that's 6K distance because that's the race distance they run. I wish they would combine. I would wish they would take it and move both races down to the 8K distance, which is about five miles. It allows the milers to have a better shot at competing at the cross-country level, and it doesn't overweight the 10,000-meter runners who have a huge advantage of running their race distance over hill and dale. And the milers and the 3K runners and the steeplechasers have a much harder time competing. And it would be great to have a ubiquitous, the same race distance for men and women. That would be awesome. Anyway, I went way agree, too agree way deeper than you that. wanted to. The but.
0: teaser... Has been over-teased. Sorry about that. okay. (laughs) But watch for this matchup, Colorado versus New Mexico. We think it'll come down to NCAAs, and it'll be very, very tight. All five runners will matter. So it's going to be fun to watch on the women's side as that plays out. And as Steve said, once we get closer to regionals and NCAAs, we'll give you a more complete breakdown of how all this is going down. Okay, third current event topic quickly. We talked about on our Berlin recap episode, two episodes ago, episode 43, or actually it was a special episode, sorry, that Bicali's agent came out shortly after Berlin and kind of threw him under the bus and said, hey, Bicali's distracted. He's not being professional. He's he's focused on his business interests and he's not really focused on getting it done. If he says he wants to break a world record, he's not committed to it at this point. Bicali came back and it's hard to know whether this was kind of a yeah, we talked about that uh, a little offline. Yeah, A little banter between the two to create PR for Bekele and perhaps bump up his payday on the next one. But he came back and said, no, my agent's got it all wrong. I'm fully committed to this. I still believe I can break a world record. What do you make of the back and forth between... And by the way, he also said, I, I, I'm not dropping my agent. So... <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. So, what do you make of this back and forth? Well, the first Bikali thing is, agent? I'm really
1: happy to hear Bakaley say that because at least, you know, that was my first reaction. I was like, whoa, like, you don't throw your athlete under a bus as a coach, as an agent. You don't do that. And Joss Hermans threw his athlete under a bus. And, you know, it also is a little bit tougher, too, because Joss Hermans is also Ilya Kipchoge's agent. So, then you're kind of looking at it when you hear those statements and going, "Whoa, are we playing favorites now? What's going on here?" And Josh Hermans does not need to play favorites. If you look on his roster, you and I looked at the Global Sports, <laughs> it's absurd. Uh, it's absurd the level of talent that they have on their on their on, in in his agency. I mean, it is absolutely by far in a way the he has the best athletes on his in his group. So, why did he do it? And and that was my first statement. Is like, this doesn't make any sense. So I was really happy to hear Bekaele come back and throw another punch back and say, Hey, that's bullshit. He didn't just let it go. He's like, That's bullshit. I'm legit. I'm real. And, you know, the one thing that's interesting is Bekaeley did not say anything about Joss's basic argument, which was he's too focused on his businesses, he's too focused on other things. Bekele said I'm the fucking greatest, and I'll prove it. <laughs> he and did. He pretty much said he didn't use those exact words. Like,
0: who is still the five k
1: ten? That's exactly right. Who's the who is who Who's am I on... run
0: two o three o three?
1: And when I do it, and I what he said, the second fastest time that's ever been run, or third fastest time that's ever been run. So yeah. I I thought it was I that part I'd like to see because it look, it's good to see that McKaylee is the warrior and the fighter that we thought he was, and that's nice. Again. I'm a little bit leaning, leaning towards this as a PR publicity move and stunt. Um, it's at least better, in my opinion, than poor Kipsang's agent, what he did to him. Because <laughs> right. that, if you listen to our podcast on that, that was bullshit. And I haven't <laughs> heard anything from Kipsang And I would have dropped my agent immediately after that. Yes. Uh, but uh, I do think there might be some gamesmanship going on. But it's good to see Bekele getting back after it and saying, hey. And, and he made a bold prognostication. He did. He said, I'm going to break the world record. He said, I'm going to do it. And
0: it'll be interesting to see if that gets him the rematch. Sort of like in boxing. It's like, okay, Kipchoge versus Bekele, round two. Let's see it. So we will see if that's coming, perhaps in London next year. We will see. All right, so that's the next current event. And then as we round out this intro, I wanted to share, and I'll link to this article. There was an article in, in Runner's World, of all places. We beat it up a little bit sometimes on here, but." This is a good one from Alex Hutchison, Sweat Science. He has an article that kind of covers his seven pillars of sort of successful distance running and training. I wanted to read those. We're not going to go too much, but I just wanted to tease it because I think there's some good stuff and some kind of funny stuff in here. And then you can go check out the article on your own. But it it gets to a lot of the things that we've talked about, Steve, in our our training principles. And I'm going to read his seven pillars here. The article has more detail on all of these, so definitely check out that link in our show notes. Here we go. Number one, running is good for you in moderation, which is defined as, in quotes, a lot more than you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so Check, agreed. Check,
1: yep, got that, Miles Matter. Although that, uh, there are some people who that might not be, but for n- the lion's share of our listeners and the general running, and certainly the general running public, that is very true. Yeah. Number yeah. two,
0: if it comes in a bottle, it's probably not going to make you faster or healthier. <laughs> yeah, very Basically, true. Basically, stick to real stuff and don't look for the magic bullet like our friend Salazar and all of his craziness. Number three, the best technology for tracking and guiding your runs is the device between your ears, mm. not the one on your wrist. Absolutely. As Steve likes to call them, the geekometers.
1: The geekometers. Or the anti it's the anti effort meter too that's I think that's my real problem with the geeky meter at the end of the day is it is divorcing people from their effort an effort based a feel based a rhythm based plan that at the end of the day is the only thing that's going to get people to the time or the finish to the finish line and the time that they really want. That watch is an aid, but it's not it should. It is. It is the least important computer. It's not. It's not the most important computer. The brain is the most important computer. Absolutely, you got to feel it yourself. Number four, you probably got injured from doing
0: too much too soon. <laughs> it wasn't your shoes. No, it wasn't. It wasn't your coach. Your coach. It was. It was <laughs> you probably went too fast or built your mileage too quickly. Yes, one or the other, right? Number five. The magic workout shoe or superfood is whichever one you've been ignoring lately or have <laughs> never tried. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, there's no magic bullets out there. We've got to do the work. Number six, you can probably run better. Start by running more. Wow. It's like a Kinda rephrase, of, rephrase one. of one. Yes. Yep. Number seven, you're capable of more than you think, but it will take time to get there. Yeah, wow. That's a, long, a great one. A long-term game here. If you're committed consistently over time, that's. The but way I also love. Is.
1: But I also love the first part of that. You know, when I coached at UT, I remember taking a few athletes and telling them we would finish our runs with strides, and I'd be like, "You can be as good as you want to be." I didn't add in. I didn't th- thrust that uh, that sort of expectation on everybody, but I did on ones I thought could do it, and those who took it to heart really did end up doing nearly as as, as much as they could possibly imagine. So. That's pretty cool. I like that point. Yep. But it's, two fo- it's twofold, right? So, oh, yeah.
0: So there you go. Check out
1: Alex Hutchison's article. Really well done. Sad that he won't be writing for Runner's World, which is another sort of whole other topic about yeah. what the hell's going on What's at Runner's World. And, but anyway. But a
0: guy to follow wherever he goes, I'm sure he's doing something else. So yes. hopefully he up. Actually, out. he's got
1: a great book that's supposed to be coming out, which will be super interesting. Yes. It's already... Well, that may be a already saw it pushed. Episode. I already saw it pushed on Amazon.
0: Okay. So... Let's go to our main topic. As we said, we want to cover listener questions today. These weren't really asked for, but we've been getting some emails from you guys, which we really appreciate. And we take time to read all of them, although we don't always respond right away. So be patient with us. But we've got five questions teed up. This from, isn't our day job, Chris. Right, from <laughs> listeners. Three from our friend Josh from Kentucky. We've got another great one from the UK from Scott. And then one from a local. Austin listener from Team Rogue who in my morning stupor couldn't remember actually asked me this question, but we're gonna cover it today on the podcast because I think it's a good one. We'll cover that last.
1: It'll be generally attributed to Team Rogue.
0: Yes, exactly. (laughs) And whoever mentioned it, please remind me. I'm not always there at five thirty in the morning. All right. So He's always here, he's just not always always there. (laughs) He's not always there. (laughs) Mentally there. Okay. So Josh from Kentucky had three really good questions, I think really good practical questions. That I think it'll be fun to get to. And and these all come from kind of references he makes to past episodes. But here's the first one, Steve. And this one's really for you. But I'd like to talk about it too because I've actually done this this protocol in your training. He says, you guys mentioned an unfueled 30-mile run to train for Boston. Can you tell me how much, f- how far out this run typically takes place?
1: Yeah, so I'll actually just do a short bit of context for it overall because I think it's probably important for anybody that didn't hear that reference, which was kind of an offhanded reference in that podcast. We do a 30-mile no-nutrition run in our Boston plan. I only do it one time a year. I don't do it twice a year, although I do I do make recommendations for my athletes to do unfueled runs. I just don't do a, an over-distance unfueled run except for, for Boston. The reason for that is that Boston's special, um, and I like to always encourage, at least in the group that I coach, um, which is the, the 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 fastest or the most focused, the most performance based of our of our people here in Austin. Um, that that's the that's the big one. That's our that's our Olympic games. That's our Olympic trials, and so we go for it. So I always like to throw my, my best workouts and all my new stuff. I throw out then. Also, it's done, um, to answer your question specifically, it's, it's varied in terms of when I have thrown it in. But we've about, we used to have it at about six weeks out and then one year because of a Boston being earlier than normal, I think that was what it was, that Boston was like a week or two weeks earlier. It ended up being five or four weeks out and we felt like, man, it was too way too close to it. So I pulled it out a little further. I would argue that, Depending on your schedule, I would I would design a run like this, whether and thirty miles is not magic, thirty miles is just the number. It was just something big. It could be twenty eight, but we chose thirty because it just sounds good. And uh but I would suggest six weeks to eight weeks out. Anything closer to your race than six weeks is a real danger of being um too much and with not enough time to recover. Um but anything further than eight weeks out means you may not be getting the nutritional va- the value of fat-burning fuel, getting to that fat-burning fuel, fuel space. So why the hell do we do it in the first place? Well, it's twofold. Hmm. The first is I like to fuck with people's heads, and I, I like to call it the mind fuck, and I'm into it, and I've always been into it, and I'll always and, be into and it. And let's be
0: honest, that's the primary reason, Steve.
1: It's the primary reason. But I you But I also do it because, in my view... It's important to test the body um, and get to start using fat fuels and to get used to what's going to happen psychologically when that happens. This is an interesting story. We went a couple of years ago, we had an opportunity to go up to the University of Texas's sports science labs um, where Dr. Eddie Coyle is and a number of other great scientists. And we had an opportunity to do a question and answer um, session with him and talk through a number of things. And he is, He's he's the he's the leading scientific researcher on endurance fuels for athletes, and he um, he's been the doctor to Lance Armstrong. He's been the doctor to many other amazing athletes, and he I ran at the University of Texas and had opportunities to meet him. Got to be tested in his labs over the years and have a pretty good relationship with him. And I remember we were talking about our athletes. We chose for a long time to ask our athletes not to run with fuel frequently, and he said this doesn't make any sense. Why in the world would you? Why would the world would you ask your athlete not to use fuel when they're going to be able to use fuel in their race? And I thought, well, here we, and I argued with him. I went back and forth. I went back and forth with the most eminent (laughs) sports scientist in this area head to head with him. And I still, we still, we got to a loggerheads and we still disagree on it. And his point is, there's no physiological reason for you to necessarily do that because the body should get a little bit better at burning flat fuels, but you're going to have sugar fuels, and it's, there's not much you can do. Your top off is not going to make a big difference. But my argument was, what happens when your athlete has never gone through the psychological effects of that? What goes on when you're, when you're moving th- out of sugar phase of, of using fuel and into the fat phase of using fuel? Things shift in your body, and it happens no matter what. Even though you're testing and you're running with fuel, you still go to more fat after, at a certain point. And so my argument was, psychologically, you've got to be ready for that. So while it is a mind fuck to mess with people's heads, it's also a mind, pre- mind resilience preparation process to get the athlete to be able to say, this is what my, my brain is on a different drug now. And I now know I have to, I'm going to have to do something different to get the result I want in this race. Because you're not operating the way that you were at the 10 mile mark. You're not operating the way that you were operating at the eight, 16 mile mark, somewhere between 18 miles and 22 miles. Everybody, quote unquote, hits the wall, shifts between fat fuel burning and, 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 and sugar fuel burning and carb fuel burning and fat fuel burning. And that when that time happens, It's like the worst timing, Chris, right? I mean, it's not optimal timing for when you're trying to run a great marathon. And if you're not prepped for that, if you don't have had, haven't had an experience of doing it, it's important. So specious, perhaps, reasons for doing it. I still feel confident. Although, Chris, as you know, there were a couple times over the years where I have thought about jettisoning this idea and not doing it. Right. And to your credit, you were like, no, this is a tradition. This is <laughs> a plan. We follow through. Let's do it. And I did. And I'm thankfully, I'm thankful and grateful to you for saying that because now I feel even more strongly that it's that the value of it, the assets of it, are much greater than the negatives. What can I say? I'm a masochist. <laughs> Having done this
0: one twice, at least, maybe three times, a couple of things. One, it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. There's certainly a point where you start to get a little... You struggle at some point physically. You also maybe get a little bit loopy. This one's fun for the group. We always bond significantly around it because the conversation goes crazy places. And at the end of the run, it's just fun
1: and funny at the same time. I think at one point one of our athletes reached and by nature just went for the Gatorade jug and pushed the Gatorade jug and got water in their Gatorade mug and their (laughs) Gatorade cup. And literally another one of their teammates said, are you sure? And the person looked at her like, I don't know what you're talking about. So she slapped it out of her out of the other runner's hand. And the other runner said, thank you. Thank you so much. I didn't do that. (laughs) Well,
0: yeah, there's, there's a lot of inside jokes that have come from these runs. There's also a lot of sabotage that is it's <laughs> uh, tried to happen in <laughs> these things, but um, so that's one thing. The second is that there is something psychological in my mind about it, where it's like, hey, if I can run thirty miles, it makes twenty six miles not seem like that big a deal, mm. and that carries over to race day for me, at least it has, having done it. The other thing I would say is a tip for you, Josh, if you decide to incorporate this into your training, is that, and this, I have to give full credit to Jeff Knight our former director of training, who's also coached with us. He's a sports scientist, a master's of some sort in that world. And he recommended that we not eat breakfast prior to the unfueled long run, which I think makes a huge difference. Absolutely. if, If you go in fasted, then your body's basically kind of keyed up to start burning fat. But if you eat, then you get the insulin spike, and then it's looking for another meal within the four hours or so that this has taken us. So don't eat breakfast. I know this is, sounds counterintuitive. You think, well, I have to eat breakfast. Otherwise, I'm going to really struggle. But it actually is better if you don't eat breakfast. You'll feel better throughout the run. So those are our tips. Now, this, Steve, is also an opportunity for us to tease for those that listen here that we're going to actually be leading a podcast-driven Boston slash Vancouver marathon program for those that want to train for April May marathons we're going to have an opportunity for you guys to sign up and train with us virtually through the podcast and so if you do that Josh for Boston then you better believe there'll be a 30-miler on that program (laughs) so So we will lay it out for you if you choose to join us for that. So that's a quick teaser. We'll have more coming on that. It will start in December timeframe. So we've got a couple of months before we get there and we'll have more information coming in future podcasts, but we're super excited. We've got a lot of questions from people about coaching them virtually from all over the place. And we want to at least start by giving people that opportunity and hopefully over time, we'll be able to add other distances and so forth to that virtual training as an option. So there you go. That's question number one about the 30-mile unfueled runs. Thank you, Josh. Now, Josh's second question we'll get to now, which I kind of laughed at when he asked it. And this one's got a little more nuance probably to the answers. But he said, you mentioned aerobic babies a lot. And I wanted to see if there's a benchmark for when you think someone has moved past this. So... How do you know if you've graduated from aerobic baby to aerobic toddler to aerobic teenager to aerobic adult, Steve?
1: You know this one's a hard one. It's a great question because it's like I know it when I see it, but that's no good rant. That's no good answer, right? Right. That's no good answer. I I would guess I would say this. Um, it, it <coughs> it's like it's like looking at. Um, I guess I would use probably most the the best thing I would say is there's a relative ease of running long runs where it's just like you're easier to get into a rhythm it's easier to man you're never you're, maybe it's the stress levels of doing things that are aerobic, the stress level of your long run, the stress level of looking at longer workouts begins to drop consistently, and so there's an ease of use where. The runner is feeling so much more, so much better, and and they are recognizing that they're seeing the absolute benefit of the volume increase and or um, long run increase. Now, encounter in posed that I had an athlete that I coached recently say to me, you know, I mean, he was he's a he's he's running basically fifty miles a week right now, but he's always tired. And and you know he was normally a forty mile a week runner for a while, but he's been listening to our podcast and he's also been coached by me for a while. And he was like, "I've just been pushing my volume. I've been pushing my volume." And you know, I think when we talk about aerobic development, we talk about being an aerobic monster or not an aerobic baby. We're we're saying to them to follow that lydiard principle of volume, volume, volume. Um, and I think it's important that there'll be a point where you you can't just focus on just that long run and you can't just focus on just that mileage. You've got to bring it back in a little bit and say it's got to work in the context of the quality work you're doing. It's got to work in the context of the long run you're trying to get in and the context of the stress and work-life balance that you're trying to keep together. So a lot of that being said, honestly, I think you'll know it when you're there. What do you think, Chris?
0: Uh, I've got a few. I don't think there's a perfect answer. There's no one metric, I think. As you said, it's you kind of know it when you see it, but I've got a few things that I would kind of point to that might be indicators. And the first is just time. You know, becoming moving from aerobic baby to aerobic toddler to aerobic teenager to aerobic adult or aerobic monster, whatever you want to call it, it takes years to go from one stage to the, the next. And I don't think you can really consider yourself moving past this aerobic baby stamp, you know, period until you've trained consistently at relatively high volumes for you for at least three to four years. And if you're still in that window of starting and kind of in that initial period of getting into running for the first three or four years, I don't think you can even think, am I, am I out of that aerobic baby phase? I don't think it's possible to move that quickly. And it may be more, more years than that. So I think one thing is just remember this, is a this is a, a multi-year process. The two other things, I think one, which you kind of references that when you can knock out an 18 mile run and have it feel like maybe you used to be able to knock out an eight mile run, mm-hmm. like in terms of difficulty level, in terms of your ability to bounce back in terms of soreness the next day, all those things, fatigue afterwards. If you can knock that out and then go about your business like you didn't do anything, that's an indicator for me. And I don't remember at what point that became true in my
1: journey, but at some point it did. It's so true, Chris. I mean, think about in our team road group, how often I put in 18 milers as an easy run. do it all the time. And it's because, and I didn't even think about it, but that number is sort of like this weird space where when athletes can do that and it is easy and they're not bending over. We don't go to 22, 24, 20 very often. We stay in that 18-mile range for a long time because we seem to get a lot of benefits. That's a really good point. I like yeah. that one.
0: And and I do think when you go to 20, it's different. Like oh, yeah, you it, shift. Uh, yeah, it yeah. totally shifts. And so that's one thing. The other thing I would say is the other indicator I've noticed through the years is that you recover faster. And I'm not talking about necessarily between workouts. I'm talking about within workouts. When you give us workouts that are one-minute recoveries or in and out workouts where you're not necessarily recovering you're just going at a little slower pace but i can then get back onto the faster pace more easily that's when or that's when i knew that i'd kind of reached that point and when i compare myself to a lot of more talented younger faster runners in our group oftentimes i can kick their ass in long sustained workouts because i'm recovering so much faster than they are so it becomes a weapon, so to speak, that I can use in a workout knowing that they might beat me on one interval, but they're not going to beat me on the consistent lot of them, especially if we have short rest or no rest with just a slower pace in there. So, you know, what does that look like exactly? I don't know, or I don't precisely remember when the switch flipped, but for me, it's like I recover really quickly at pace versus other people that get buried and once they're buried,
1: they can't get out. One other hard guideline I put in here, Chris, is thinking about what you're talking about. I do think there's a number at like 40 miles a week where if you're not running something like 40 miles a week or more, you're not going to get there. It's just not. So if you're running 30 miles a week, it's probably going to take you eight years. Then if you run 40 miles a week, it'll probably take you four to five years. Right. So. And if you're running, if you get to a place where you can comfortably run 50, 60, 70 miles a week, it's going to happen more sooner. And that's just simple math, right, Chris? 52 weeks times an average of 40 miles a week, 52 weeks times an average of 70 miles a week, you're going to see something completely different. But I do, you know, I over the years of coaching Team Rogue now, it's like 14, 15 years on enough. I mean... I have a number in my head. If an athlete doesn't, if an athlete is not running 40 miles a week, it's going to be very hard for them to succeed in my program, no matter how much time I give them. Um, Now, the only people that's not true is if there's listeners out there who are triathletes who are only doing three quality workouts, only doing three runs a day, three runs a week, because they're also doing cycling and swimming. That might be a little bit different, but their aerobic development will be very, it won't be specific to their, you know, the mitochondrial benefits won't be the same but they're probably getting some other residual benefits from so much volume they're doing in the cycling and the, and the and the swimming so that being said i do think that for our listeners out there if you're in this if you're listening to us still to this point and you're looking at a vol- weekly volume number that's sort of like that you're in the ballpark of getting yourself on the right road i would i would venture to say 40 miles a week is probably where you kind of need to be assuming you can balance fit that in the life balance that you need to And, of course, build to
0: it appropriately so that you're not jumping up too fast. So there you go, Josh. A couple of things to look for is definitely that ease with which you can do those longer runs and then time at sustained mileage. And then, of course, your ability to recover within workouts. Those are some indicators to know when you're graduating, but there are no diplomas on this. (laughs) It's just kind of the thing you're feeling out. All right. So that's question number two for Josh. We had a third question, which I know you also recently got something of like this from one of your athletes, Steve. So we're going to take this to, you one, this to you first. But he said, you mentioned two mile time trials and using paces from that to train for that cycle. However, that is typically not going to make you train at your goal pace for three months from starting the program. Do you retest each month or is there a philosophy that you'll adapt to faster than those paces even though you're not training to your goal paces.
1: So, yeah, as you alluded to Chris, I have an athlete that I coach virtually who um, you know, I don't get to see this person run, I don't get to see her run at all. I have n- never met her. I've just been meeting her over the phone. We've talked on the phone and we've and we've uh, communicated through via email. But I needed to get some numbers, and metrics to figure out with her. This particular athlete is specifically a really good at effort-based training or at least Good at running based on her efforts, but when I started to ask her to categorize those efforts in 75 percent effort, or an 85 percent effort or 95 percent effort, and then tried to plug them in with paces, I realized, man, I was banging my head up against a wall in terms, in terms of trying to get to understand her better. And at some point in time in these training programs, we do need real data points, right? We need diagnostic numbers that we can plug in that we can start seeing benefits. Um, and many of our, many people don't want to race so much. So the best manner and the best way to do that is to use a time trial. So why a two-mile time trial? Well, basically because where we sit with real true VO2 max work and where we sit with real truly trying to figure out where threshold is, the two-mile distance has turned out to be a good effort. So um, it's a little scary for a lot of people, right? I mean, it makes people nervous. They get worried about what they're going to do, how they'll be able to succeed at it. Many runners who especially who are very, Talented on the more talented on the distance side, or have come come from the I'm not a fast runner. Get really stressed out by the fact that they're only going to run eight laps around a track. But this number basically gives us. There's some physiological reasons why we do it, but it's also ease of 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 implementation. Nearly anybody has a 400 meter track near them. Um, so we got a flat surface. We've got you know, a, a codified distance, distance yeah. a measured distance, and we know where we're at. Um, and that, and then we've got all these great calculators that we can use to plug in and, and put them places. So I ask my runner, and I ask my runners when they do a time, and I don't do a time trial with my team road group ever because we race enough, and I use race efforts. But, if, but I, we need to use it when you don't have any clear indication of where you're at. And I, will, I want to make this point. It's really important. If you have a 5K race or a 10K race or a half marathon race, you should use that number way before you use your, your two-mile time trial. So it's only applicable for people who may not have a chance to race and you're trying to dial paces and you're trying to dial efforts in. So for that reason, um, we don't need to do it every month or check in really frequently with it. We're just using it to try to determine what the most appropriate paces are for us. Um, so what I ask an athlete once they get done with that, they finish that. I like to take that number, plug it into a calculator. I personally use Greg McMillan's calculator. I think um, it's particularly kind to distance-focused athletes. Um, it's weighted towards. Um, it'll look a little weighted towards, you know, 5K, 10K, because Greg has a tendency to do, had a tendency to bake bake that into the algorithm. But it really is pretty good for the half marathon and marathon distances, and I love it. It's really handy-dandy. I use the app. Um, the app is a, cost a little bit of money, um, but it's super amazing and really easy to use. So you take it, you plug it into the app, and then it spits out for you these really useful times. So it'll say, based on your two-mile time trial, um, it, it, it says the equivalent 5K time that you would run for a fast 5K would be X. And then it'll have a pace beside it. And what I do is say, take that pace per mile, and that's your new 5K training pace. Then you you do the same thing. You look at your 10K, and you plug that. You, when it comes out, it'll it'll give you a specific pace. And then I'll ask my athletes to train at those paces for the next four to six weeks, um, and to really try to stay there. Now I've recently added a, a new thing, kind of call I call now three pace a three pace tier of training. I'll save that for another conversation, Chris. I think that's probably a good topic for another day. But basically, it doesn't matter. I didn't used to use that now. but it, So for many, many years, I used just a single pace thing. But now you've got clear indications of what you should be training at. And, and the 5K, 10K, half marathon, a marathon, they fit you know, physiological checkpoints that are really, really helpful. And once you know the kind of range that you're in, you can actually start doing really good workouts. And you can start doing workouts at appropriate paces for where you are. Now, the challenge is here, Chris, there is some waiting that goes on. Most people will be scared by that 5K time when they plug it in um, they'll, most pe- because they're more distance-oriented. Also, people probably were not, if it's the first time you've ever done a time trial, you're probably not going to be very good at it. If you didn't run high school track or you didn't run, or you didn't run at, 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 at that level, it's a, it's a short distance. It's weird. It doesn't feel quite right. It feels like you're sprinting all the time. So. My athlete that I coach, um, I think I might throw another one at her in four to six weeks. So she's got a chance to show some facility at it and be better at doing it because I don't think she, she she fluctuated in paces pretty a lot each quarter. And so it was like a little bit weird. Like she got off, but then she got back on and she got off. And I think if she got another chance to hit it, she might've run 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 20 seconds faster. And that's a big difference in terms of what her marathon pace, half marathon pace, 5K pace and 10K pace will be. So. Those are some things to look at when you're looking at this time when you're looking at this time trial um, again, the only reason I would do it again or do it in a consistent basis is just to be sure that you got that first time you've done it right um, and then from there I would I mean we're big believers in racing Chris we we argue folks getting out there and using race efforts as a way to determine how to better run r- future races but also because it really helps you dial in where you're at.
0: Yes. So that's better. And that's, as you say, it's better if you can race instead of doing a time trial, especially a longer race that's shorter than marathon distance, that's a better indicator. So do a time trial early, do another race prep type race later in the cycle to check in to see where you are. A couple of things for me on this. One is that the time trial to me is super important in my programming. I use it because I end up with a lot of athletes coming into my program probably more frequently than you do, Steve. So I end up with people I'm unfamiliar with. So if I'm yep. unfamiliar with them, that time trial can be a really good indicator of yeah, my athletes kind of And my athletes kind of had to
1: graduate into my program.
0: Right, yep. exactly. And we have a little more history on the Team yep. Rogue athletes. So it's a good indicator if I don't know anything about an athlete. The other thing, though, I'll say is that I always remind my folks, veterans and the newbies alike, that the time trial is one data point. It is only one data point, and there's other inputs that might be relevant in talking with your coach about what your target paces should be. For me, those might include recent race results if there are others to kind of look at. It would also include your goal. It would include how you're doing in workouts. It would include potentially some variables around the weather that day that may have affected your time or... Like even i've adjusted people based on their splits. They had a really negative split in a 2 mile time trial from one to the next, then i might even bring it down a little bit, adjust it down in terms of the the number i use for calculation, knowing that they just didn't pace themselves properly. They could have finished stronger if they'd gone out faster. So, it's one data point. It can be a very good data point. <clears throat> and you know, it's as as we said race again but whether but as as it relates to the question of do you train for your goal or you train for your your time trial output to me again those kind of two things i always consider together you know because i might have a time trial output that says an athlete could run a four-hour marathon they may say their goal is to run a 350 and then it becomes a decision and in your case like you've said maybe a range with which you work in depending on how you're feeling so Is there a magic time from when you go to that time trial output to the goal output? It just depends on how the training's going, and you have to feel it out, and only to the extent that you have command over those paces at whatever your starting point should you consider graduating. Until you have command, meaning you're in control, you can run relaxed at those paces, especially marathon and half marathon pace, you shouldn't consider graduating to your goal pace or to the next pace. You're not quite ready for that. So you have to kind of use a mix of time trial outputs and a mix of how you're feeling at those paces to really understand when you can move up and so that's probably more nuanced than you wanted there josh but (laughs) we're saying it's complicated but but i guess if we could just really quick and dirty kind of filter it down use that time trial output put it into a calculator start training at those paces and then only progress either because you have a race output that indicates you can do better or because you start to feel so in control of those paces that you want to give yourself an opportunity to
1: try faster ones. One question for you, Chris, with regards to this. Which calculator do you use? I use Macmillan's as well. Yeah, there are others out there, um, and that's another question for another day, but um, it's ch- I highly recommend if you've not used calculator before, um, don't fuck around. Just go straight to Macmillan.
0: Yeah. MacmillanRunning.com. Okay, thank you for that question, Josh, and for those three questions. Now we move to Scott from the UK. It's cool, first of all, Scott, that you're listening to us from the UK. I don't think we ever anticipated we might get listeners that far away. It's pretty from amazing, there, but that's fun for us. All right, so so Scott is on a journey to get a sub three marathon, and he basically just asked for advice on that journey. And so I'm going to read his email here, just so we get the full context, and then you and I can kind of talk about what advice what advice we might give Scott. He said, I discovered the Running Rogue podcast a few weeks ago and I've quickly made my way through probably half of them now and it's been a great inspiration and help for me. Thank you, Scott. I feel like I'm on the right track for what I want to achieve, but I'd never really known what I want to achieve other than a short-term goal of a sub three marathon. I've now decided after listening to your podcast that I will aim for a sub 245 and the sub three target will be a stepping stone to that ultimate target. I've only done two marathons so far, 329 in spring of 2016 and a 310 in spring of 2017. In both times, the wheels fell off because I also had a three three target times within the race and I set off at the best case pace and could not sustain. I've decided in spring of 2018 to go balls out, his words, for the 259 and gear my training specifically towards that time. I have a half marathon and a 20 mile race in between, which I will set Targets, but again, these times will be geared towards the marathon target and pacing. Your podcasts have made it clearer to set my goals and to know what I want to achieve and how to go about trying to achieve that. I run for two clubs where I can do two speed sessions a week one tempo, one, and then one interval, hill, or fart And right now I'm filling the gaps with easy, easy miles that do not tire me out too much for the hard sessions. I feel like the balance is there, but I just wonder if you have any specific advice for my journey. I see you offer training programs, et cetera, for marathons, for specific marathons. Can I call on your advice and training guidance from Rogue over email, telephone, or, in this case, podcast? So there you go. That's a little bit of Scott's story. Relatively new marathoner. Two in the books. 310 is his PR, although he said the wheels came off in both of those. And he's trying to go sub three with an eventual 245 goal. I'll take it to you first, Steve. What
1: advice do you have? First of all, I don't have to give too much advice because you're a badass. I love your attitude. I love your approach. Again, I think I'm in this podcast a number of times. Certainly with my athletes, I've said this frequently. I'm a crazy coach. I love crazy. And man, you're crazy. I love it. The fact that you went from basically a 330 to a 310 and blew up, 245 is, this is crazy. I don't know that there's anybody else on the face of the planet would say, dude, I think you got this. A couple of pieces of information that would be helpful is your age. That would be really help a little bit to know if where you are from an age perspective. Not because it's a crucial, crucial piece, but it might explain a little bit why you went out so fast and died. It also might explain a little bit about um, why that improvement was so great of nearly 20 minutes in one run. Um, knowing a little running history would be helpful too. But since I don't have any of that stuff, I still got lots of great ideas. The first is keep dreaming big, number one. Number two, Focus on your long runs. Um, continue to do those quality sessions, but I think that one of the things that may be happening for you is number one, you're, you're targeting a time and a goal that you may not have done enough work to really be able to achieve, and so you're slipping back and getting some other result because you haven't done the requisite work. And in this point, it seems to me your biggest bang for your buck will probably be doing getting in getting focused on what day of the week you do your long runs. Um, and so I would suggest uh, the fact that I would suggest look, and, it, and knowing what, what sort of mileage goal point that you are, the weekly mileage that you're sitting at and what you think will be optimal in terms of your life. We do, we've talked about that, Chris, in our podcast a lot. What, where's your sweet spot, right? I really, it's really good to know where that is. So I'm, I'm working a little blind here, but it's real you already gave me some good stuff. The thing that's super amazing is you're going to have a half marathon and a 20 mile race. So Keep dreaming big and keep running between the running running towards that three hour time, um, and then you're going to have some midpoints along the way where you're going to be able to test and see where you're at. Um, so my first thing is uh, let's figure out your weekly mileage, but mostly what you what you what are you doing with your long runs and how your long runs looking? Because if you're doing a tempo workout a week one one or two temp, one tempo workout a week and you're doing one speed workout a week, you are definitely covering that end of the physiological system appropriately and enough as long as you're not hammering those workouts too hard you already got the message on keeping your easy days easy so kudos to that but it seems to me that one place that you could look the first place i would look for looking at major gains is your long run Um, a couple suggestions there Um, the first is 14 to 16 to 18 mile runs to begin with with some closes chris at team rug we use closes a lot and closes really sort of shows you sort of where your fitness really really is Um, You can't hide in a 16 or 18 mile run and you certainly can't close for the last 20 to 30 minutes easily. So what's a close? A close is getting 30 minutes or 20 minutes out from the finish of your run and beginning to accelerate. And that acceleration is sort of a progression starting at whatever easy pace you're at, moving down towards half mar- down towards marathon pace, and then again down towards half marathon pace. And if you're really feeling it, how fast can you run going into the finish of your run? Um, there's no such thing as too fast. Like if you can get down to sprint, do it, but close out a long run. And that will really start to give you an idea of... Why maybe you're fading late in races? Is it really because you've set a big, hairy, audacious goal and your timing isn't right? Or is it because you haven't done the requisite work? Those closes will give you some great insight. Number two, you need a number of 20 plus mile runs. But I'm in disagreement with many people who will say that you need to do six or eight 20 plus mile runs. I'm a believer that if you've done a good number of 14, 16, and 18 mile runs, easy ones and ones with closes, maybe some with workouts in them as well, then three or four 20-plus-mile runs is probably sufficient. Um, I do run into the athletes who say, if I don't do my six 20-plus-mile runs, I'm not ready to race. And guess what I do? I give them six 20-plus-mile runs because the head is more important than anything else. And I try to do everything I can to make sure that they're ready to run that race. And then I also try to change their mind if I get to work with them over the long run um, and try to move them back to that three or four um, 20-plus-mile run space. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, is one of the hallmarks of a Team Rogue or the kind of programming that I write for my athlete are what we call race preps or workouts that sort of simulate what's going to happen in a race. Um, And so, Chris, that's maybe even by itself another podcast topic for another day, is sort of a a quiver of long-run workouts that might be appropriate for athletes. But that last part would be simulate the strengths, your, weak, your strengths and weaknesses as they might play out in a marathon. You'll have some insights from a half marathon race and a 20-mile race to give you an idea where you're at. But get some really hard push efforts that allow you to see where you're at. You know, Ilya Kachogi's training log we got to see uh, recently and it got to devour. And there are a lot of 30K and 40K long run workouts in there over undulating terrain where he's really moving. And that illustrates a bit of what we're talking about, what I'm talking about here in terms of doing a race prep or a long quality workout. So lots of meat in that. Chris, I know you're gonna have some things to share in there too, but that's, those are the main sketches that I would say, given the limited of information that we've got.
0: Okay, a couple things for me, Scott. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, you're training for a spring 2018 marathon. As I said, we'll have an opportunity for you to train virtually with us as we just teed up. The other thing I want to say is I wanted to offer some encouragement. Your journey isn't dissimilar from mine on this dimension. My marathon PR is a 245. My first marathon, I ran a 3.21, I believe it was. Second was a 3.08, so not far from your 3.10. And my third marathon, I ran a 2.55, so I went from 3.08 to 2.55. So I have no doubt in my mind that with consistent training, you can go from 3.10 to sub-3 three for sure, maybe even better if you, if you play it the right way. Now, a couple, th- I w- I'll just give two, two bits of advice in addition to what Steve said. One is that you're training for a spring. 2018 race it's currently October you probably don't need to really start gearing up for that 2018 race specifically until December so you've got an opportunity to focus on foundational mileage and if you haven't had the opportunity to build your mileage running primarily easy maybe cutting out those speed workouts altogether for the next couple of months I might consider a little 8-10 week mileage build block where you just focus on easy running, getting your mileage up to a higher level, maybe ten to fifteen percent higher than you've typically been, to set a really good foundation. Amidst doing that, you might do some strides during the week, but but just cut out the speed work it's work altogether to to make sure you're doing it safely until we get you ready or hopefully start getting you ready in December for for your marathon specific training. So that'd be one thing I would consider is just a little bit of a mileage block leading into your spring 2018 build. The other thing I would say is that you probably have an opportunity to race smarter. We like to say around here that there's no plan Bs in marathoning and having three different target times in a race is a recipe for disaster and confusion and probably starting out too fast. It sounds like you've done that a couple of times, gone out too fast, being a little too ambitious with your planning. And we're big believers in the negative split, having a really smart race plan my sort of textbook race plan, which, was, which has worked, worked for a lot of people, assuming it's a flat race, is to start about 45 seconds, sometimes even a minute slower than marathon pace in your first mile to get going and make sure you really start e- out easily. Pick it up over the next three to five miles down to your marathon pace. Hold that until you get to 22 or so and then close it out with a strong finish. If you do that, typically... You're going to have something left to really push it at the end. And that's the way to get your optimal time. So as we get closer, you know, we'll talk about race planning, but I do think it's possible that you could have run a sub three or close to it in your last race if you just run a smarter race. So I think I would practice smart pacing, especially
1: in any of these preparation races. I want to say one thing, Chris, on top of what you just said about that, taking that, not doing the quality workouts. Um, If Scott, if it's going to make you crazy not to do something and you're looking for something to do and you got to do something, then maybe go in every two weeks and do that, that tempo run with that group and try to avoid that interval workout. If you're going to go Chris's route, but you still got to get something in the best bang for your buck in a quality workout is to steer away from the short speed or 5k, 10k type work and be more focused on something that's tempo based. Um, the other, But the important thing there is to be sure that you're not doing anything tempo-based that's faster than what your three-hour goal time is because you can, if you're doing it in a group, you might be getting pulled in and doing stuff that's too fast that could be dangerous in terms of staying healthy. So I don't know if you want to riff off that a little bit, Chris, but it's just I know that it's, it's, good it's super easy it's good to tell point. somebody not to do it, but sometimes we just have to. And if you had to choose, that's where I would go because I think the strides are going to get you to keep – as you said, you were really clear about – Make sure you still do your strides. So the other thing I would put, if you have to do it, maybe think about a tempo every other week. I can dig that. All right, Scott, that's all the advice for now. Feel free to
0: lob questions back our way and definitely look out for that spring 2018 marathon program that we'll be putting out there. We'd love to guide you to the sub three journey. That'd be super fun to get somebody in the UK (laughs) under their goal. Okay, last question. This one came from an Austin listener from one of our Team Rogue Athletes unknown (laughs) question, unknown, anonymous. And (laughs) the question was simply, how do you find your motivation when you've lost it? How do you find your motivation when you've lost it? And I'm going to start on this one. I've got three different things that, that I kind of have folks consider when they, they find themselves in a dark place. And that might be because they had a bad race, might be because they've been training really intensely for a while and they're just kind of burned out it happens to all of us so it's not uncommon even for those of the most motivated of us to to have you know these moments where we just feel like we don't want to do it so first thing and i'm sure you could expect this from us which is that always go back to first principles which is why are you doing this and i remind my athletes to connect back to that purpose that we've talked about many times in mental training you've got to connect back to the purpose think about Why you set out to do this in the first place? Also, think about how that may have evolved as your training and and as your motivation has evolved. So go back to that purpose. Check back in with that purpose. Maybe rewrite or modify your statement of purpose if needed to kind of tap back into why you're doing this. Sometimes it's as simple as just remembering why you do this. For me, when I have those low moments, and for me they tend to come in kind of smaller bursts, where it might be a week where I'm just feeling down or or maybe the month after a marathon, just simply reflecting on and thinking back on that purpose helps me a ton. A couple other things. These are kind of related points, but the other is, you know, sometimes you just need to mix it up. Sometimes you need to do something different and have a little fun with it and take a little break from maybe intense training for a marathon or whatever it may be. So doing some trail races, maybe jumping in a triathlon if if you have the swimming ability. Maybe just running for a period of time where you're where you're not so worried about nail and speed workouts or running certain times in certain races is another way to to do this. And the final thing I'll say before I get your thoughts, Steve, is sometimes you just need a break. Sometimes it's an indicator that hey, I need to take two weeks off, not run a a step. And have a good time, do other things, take your mind off of it, and then come back, come back slowly, come back, hopefully recharge. So those are some thoughts from me. What do you think, Steve? Um
1: all Chris's points are the most important points. Um I'll just do a little nuance on a few of them. I'm a big, big believer in trail running, and I think that um Chris suggested doing something different, but I'm gonna make a shout out to doing trail running and and, and, and I don't mean just getting out on the trail and running one trail run. A week, I think it's it would be more along the lines of saying, "Hey, I'm going to continue to utilize whatever training program I'm doing, Um, but I'm going to go out and I'm going to run a trail race, which means I need to do some some sort of focused trail running. If 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 that doesn't bring the juices back, um, then I think one or two things are happening. Number one, you had a big, hairy, audacious goal that you met. You know, you and I both know I have an athlete that I coach who is a coach for us at Rogue." Um she's one of our favorite people in the world and she's been going through some rough times in terms of finding her motivation again. I suggested the trail running thing. She didn't really want to go down that road, but it brought to mind some other things that were going on in her head and it was mostly that um she needed a a, a realized that she had reached this just monumental and amazing goal that she had set out to reach. And it has just been very hard to get back. And then the, re- the things of work stress and life stress, and none of those things have been easy for her, as we know. But they, they have got to the point where um, it, just, it just overwhelmed the fact that she wasn't having any fun and we all do things for a whole lot of different reasons chris and what fun means is not always grab assing or or partying or or whatever it's finding that purpose and being locked in with that purpose so the one thing about trail running is it lets you contain kind of itch scratch that itch stay stay at it keep your weekly schedule of doing quality workouts and doing stuff and staying with it so my first thing is trail running is awesome number 2 Look at why that motivation may be slipping, and if it is something, you know, another athlete that that I can think of is our our good friend, Nora, who qualified for the Olympic trials. She'd struggled on and off in terms of getting back at it because she'd reached that goal, and it's really tough to kind of come back at that. So if that has happened, then the only thing you can do is to try to find the fun again. That fun can be found through your statement of purpose, as Chris has already stated, or just remembering why you do this in the first place just from a fun standpoint. Like being a kid with, a, like, a, like I like to say, starting line being just a line in the sand and a finish line somewhere down the road. Um, look at trying to bring the fun back. Um, the last thing I'll say here is um, related to uh, just sort of in a mental approach to, to running is it's, it's not always on. And anybody who's on is going to have an off time. And again, you alluded to this. I'm just following up, sort of, on and reiterating the things that you said. But man, that that break it's essential. And and if this is the problem that people have when they don't take the breaks after their big races, that they'll go, they'll immediately get excited or frustrated by the race result that they got in their last race. And then just bury themselves immediately. When I see an athlete who refuses to take two weeks or three weeks away from our programming, I'm always like, well, I'm only going to have them for nine months or 12 months or, 20 or or 18 months, and then I won't see them anymore because that's all they're going to be able to do, and they're going to move on to cross-country skiing or uh, tiddlywinks or some other strange activity. Snowshoeing you know? in Texas. Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> so you're right, though. It's a long-term journey, and that is, that's important to remember that you're not always going to be on and that's okay but if you if you just stick with it over the long haul and take the bumps you know with with the with the peaks then uh it's gonna be okay absolutely so there you go questions from listeners
1: thank Chris, you this has been kind of fun it's like it's been a lot of fun it's like
0: car talk for runners yeah especially like I accept, because we didn't know i mean we didn't talk about our answers right so exactly. fun to just riff on this stuff so thank you guys for sending those our way. Really appreciate it. Scott and Josh and Anonymous uh, unknown, anonymous <laughs> from Team Rogue. I'm sorry for forgetting. And if you have questions, fire them our way. Chris at Rogue Running is my email. Steve's is Steve Sisson at Rogue Running. We're always happy to, to get those, whether they're questions or you just want to kind of comment on maybe something that we've said that stood out to you. So we really appreciate that dialogue. and. As we said, we'll be doing another episode like this and uh, it'll come at some cadence depending on how many we get. So do send your questions our way whenever they come. Well, we're going to wrap it here. Episode 44. As always, you can check us out at our website, roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter or the Facebook at Rogue Until next time, we'll talk to you then. Adios.